Hey everyone, and welcome to SCU Buzz Podcasts. I'm River, and today we are going to be talking about rubbish, quite literally. We'll be diving into circular economy and waste reduction principles on a local to global scale, following Southern Cross University's Impact Forum on Circular Economies. Joining me is the Principal Scientist at the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research and Extraordinary Professor at Northwest University, South Africa, Professor Linda Godfrey. We also have with us an academic from Southern Cross University's Faculty of Science and Engineering, Professor Dirk Erler. Welcome, Linda and Dirk. It's great to have you join us. Thanks, Riva. Thank you. So, Linda, I'll start with you. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Riva, and thanks for the opportunity to join you this morning. Well, I've been working in the waste sector in South Africa for close on 25 years. Uh, My background, I'm an environmental scientist and just a passion for for waste, for pollution and and the impact that it has on the environment and human health. So, yeah, as a researcher, just doing research in the field. And now I manage a research program for the South African government, for our Ministry of Science and Innovation, particularly focused on driving the strategic direction and investment in waste and the circular economy. Wow. Dirk, welcome to the podcast. Could you give us a bit of a background on your work and what Recirculator is all about? Yeah, thanks, River. Uh, I'm also an environmental scientist who sort of fell into this uh, area of circular economy. I've done research on nutrient cycling, mainly in lots of different environments, mostly in natural systems. And then more recently, looking at wastewater treatment systems and how we can actually recover nutrients rather than just seeing how they are processed in the environment. So that's moving me more in an applied science space and uh, Australia's just catching up with the rest of the world in circular economy and so that's where the university's heading. We're trying to establish ourselves as a regional centre for research into circular economy. Mm. And with wastewater management, I imagine with the current climate crisis and the ongoing droughts that we have in Australia and around the world, learning how to recycle wastewater I imagine is quite important for the future of our water health. Absolutely. I mean, globally, water's a scarcity. Uh, it's a resource that we need to cherish. And yeah, that's my objective. Uh, my scientific work is to try and make sure that the water that's being used is being discharged appropriately. We're removing and recovering as many of the things we put into that water that can be recirculated back into um, back into the economy. Mm. But certainly in Australia, water's always been a cherished commodity and it will always be. So we're recording this podcast the day after the Impact Forum on Circular Economy. And Linda, you were a keynote speaker at the event. What were some of the main takeaways from the forum for both of you? Well, I think... You know, first of all, it was it was an absolute privilege to be invited to come to the Impact Forum, to come to Southern Cross University and give the keynote address. And I think one of the main reasons, well, I think there are probably two, to share information on what we're doing in South Africa with regards to the circular economy, but also to learn in terms of what, of what Australia is doing and where it is along its own journey in transitioning to a circular economy. So I was really quite excited to learn from the other speakers, from the other participants at the event yesterday. And I think probably the surprising thing is in in terms of our journey in South Africa, I've been looking very much towards Europe, the EU. They're probably the thought leaders in the circular economy space, I would say. 
And so we've been following their journey quite closely over the last couple of years. And I, I, ha- I probably had a sense that Australia would be further along in its journey than where we are in South Africa. But it was interesting to see that we're facing you know, very similar challenges in terms of not only our understanding of the circular economy, but where we are with regards to waste management. My sense was that Australia is still predominantly landfills, most of its waste that it generates, as does South Africa. So we, we probably on equal footing in terms of understanding what our response should be, how we want to manage waste. Uh, there was a lot of discussion yesterday around waste plastic and, and similar discussions. You know, how do we manage waste plastic at end of life? What should the, the upstream interventions be in terms of reducing the consumption the production of plastic. So that for me was exciting is that, you know, we can walk this journey together as countries. I think we face similar kinds of challenges in the global south. We also, you know, have strong mining-based economies. And so what does it mean in terms of resource extraction, consumption, the export of resources into the global market? But um, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed the session yesterday and and just engaging and learning. And and I'm really keen to see where Southern Cross University takes the the field and and the research in circular economy going forward. Mm. And Dirk, what was your takeaway? My takeaway uh, yesterday really came from Linda's talk in the morning. I thought that was fantastic. And one of the first things she said was, you know, it's not all about waste. A circular economy is not really about waste and just in your introduction uh you were you were talking about it you know about rubbish and recycling and that's really a small part of it and for me that was a real eye-opener because i come from a background where we're very technical oriented we're focused on the waste and how we take that back into the economy but we're dealing with a global transition to a whole different economy this is an enormous undertaking it's not just about recycling and and changing waste it's about how the country uses resources how we value resources it's fundamental change to society and i think that's a journey that southern cross university has to be involved in uh, and hopefully leading Mm. so to follow along with that that circular economies aren't just about rubbish and waste this question is for you linda would you better tell us about what a circular economy actually is and how it differs from waste management and recycling. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a great question that because I think up until now there's been this misnomer that the circular economy is a way, is about waste management and and probably worse that it's a synonym for recycling. And it's so much more than that. Yeah, as Dirk was saying, it's really about sustainable resource management. What the circular economy does is it really tracks the movement of resources through an economy which for now, in terms of our global, regional, local economies, has been very linear. So we extract resources, we make things, we consume things, and at end of life, we throw them away. And the problem with that model of extracting, making, consuming, throwing away is when you live on a planet of finite resources, at some point in time, you're going to run out. And so the question is, how do we change that paradigm? How do we rethink resources? So first of all, how do we actually decouple development from resource consumption? And then secondly, how do we rethink our relationship with resources? Can we interact with resources? Can we access goods and services in a completely different way that is less resource intensive? 
And then when products move to end of life, instead of throwing them away into landfill, can we reuse, remanufacture, repair, refurbish before we even get to recycling? So it's around closing the loop around resources and how we use them, how we consume them. So I think, you know, at a local level in terms of our cities and towns, at a regional, at a national, at a global level, it's really about rethinking our relationship with resources and and reducing the consumption uh, of resources. And so the circular economy is absolutely more than waste management because by the time you get to the point of waste and pollution, it's too late. You know, it's an end of pipe solution. And so we've got to move the entire discussion sort of upstream in terms of our consumption behavior. And, and uh, you know, I think one of the things that came out yesterday as well was this, we need to use less, we need to use longer, we need to reuse so, um, yeah, it's, it was great to see that discussion open up yesterday in terms of how we rethink resource use in our manufacturing sectors, in agriculture, in our cities and towns, in transportation and mobility, in our energy, water sectors. It really applies across the board. Mm. Dirk, do you have anything to say to that as well? Uh, just to reiterate that it is a whole of society issue. It's It's consumers, what they are demanding and how much we use, how much we waste, right up to the big companies that are extracting minerals, governments that, uh, I mean, we're all hooked on resources. We get good income from resources. We get governments get royalties from it. So it's not an easy thing to change. So it has to be at every every level. And I think that was a big take home for me. I mean, I'm still going to work in my little space and do my bit in, in the whole circular economy space, but it's definitely a big picture issue. Mm. So, Linda, you've advised organisations about circular economy initiatives from a smaller scale, such as business and universities, right up to the United Nations um, and European Union and the South African government. What sort of large scale actions do we need to be seeing from governments and organisations to address our waste crisis? And what are the key things policymakers are not doing right now? That's a big question, that one. I think we could spend the whole day just answering that. I think that, you know, the reality is, and and this is probably what makes it so difficult to transition to a circular economy, is is that it's a fundamental change in the way that things work. We, we We can't address this issue just through small incremental changes. And so the fact that our entire global economic model is based on manufacturing and selling more stuff and us as consumers buying more stuff... Is, is, is a fundamental problem because you can't continue along that trajectory. So the question then becomes, you know, how do we change that business model that it's, you know, how do we shift, for example, to product to service? So why do I need to own everything? Why do I need to own a car? Why do I need to own my cell phone or my laptop or whatever it is? And so how do you get business to change that fundamental way that they operate around trying to convince us to buy more stuff. And that's not an easy thing. But I think that what we are seeing is we're seeing disruptors in the system. We're seeing new businesses emerge that are based on circular business models and they will disrupt the system, which will force other businesses to change their approach. And if they don't change, you know, (laughs) will probably become obsolete. And so it's exciting in that sense, in that I think there's a new space for a new type of business, new business models that we see emerging. There's certainly a space for innovators, for entrepreneurs, for the youth. I was asked uh, not so long ago by a youth group 
what does the circular economy mean for the youth? And my response was, think about every single thing that you use in a day from the moment that you wake up. And can you access that in a different way, in a non-ownership way, in a less resource-intensive way? And if you can, there's a business opportunity in that. And I think that's quite exciting because I don't think we've even scratched the surface of new types of businesses that will emerge in this space. I think in terms of your question around what can government do to help facilitate and enable it, the comment I made yesterday was that I think it's the private sector that's going to drive the transition to a more circular economy. The role of government is to create the enabling environment for the private sector to thrive. And so how, do, how can government ensure that we've got the right policy, the right regulation that will essentially allow small and large business to thrive and drive more circular practices? It's not an easy ask because I think government is is struggling to understand what that regulatory response should be because up until now, it's been very much kind of a command and control. It's been a big stick. You know, how do we protect the environment and how do we how do we regulate in a very strict way? And maybe it's going to require new types of regulatory measures, new types of policy instruments. How do we rather incentivize behavior change as opposed to penalize people for doing the wrong thing? So I think we're all trying to figure this out. And, and I think if we can learn from each other, you know, whether we can learn from other countries or other businesses, it helps us to just move along this journey quicker. You know, other people are paying the school fees. They're learning the hard knocks along the journey. And it helps us not to repeat those same mistakes. And that also for me is exciting in terms of how do we build this global community that are all on this journey together that we can learn from and share information and, and, and how are we sort of open in the discussion in moving forward. Mm. Dirk, do you have anything to add to that as well? Um, no, they're just some great insights. I, I guess just from a more local perspective and just adding to that idea that it's led from the private sector as we we're approached by many local businesses and, and statewide businesses how do we become part of the circular economy? And so our objective there and our challenge is to help these businesses develop methods to transition to that so that they can then uh, be a beacon for other industry to then follow and and then so forth so we can build momentum and then government can then see that that's working. Other businesses can see that that's working. But I think the challenge is always going to be the very large businesses that are making a lot of money and have a lot of power in terms of just pulling up resources and selling them. That is what Australia has done forever. We're good at it. But we can change that by doing more manufacturing here, more recycling of those resources. I think one of the important points that Linda made yesterday was the amount of resource that you pull out of the ground that actually stays in the country and goes to build your infrastructure and your and the things that we need. Most of it's exported. And um I think COVID was a big wake up for all countries, but especially Australia, because we were stuck without things and made us really realise that we don't manufacture stuff here and we don't recycle stuff here. We were sending stuff away to China and other countries for many, many years. So it's time that we did things ourselves. I agree with both of you there. So, Lindy, you mentioned before that there's lots of opportunities for businesses to actually be created within this new circular economy structure. Do either of you have any example business models that could emerge from moving forward into a circular economy system? Oh, golly, there's so many. 
Yeah, I mean, as I said, you know, we're really seeing innovative types of businesses. Um, the ones that sort of immediately spring to mind are, you know, in the sharing economy, in the product to service space. I was I was chatting to someone just yesterday around a business model that I've seen in the U.S. where it essentially asked the question, why do we travel with luggage? Why do we take clothes with us when we travel? And this this business essentially answered that question with saying, well, you don't have to. So let's say, for example, you're traveling on a business trip. Let's say you're going from Brisbane to Sydney and you're on business for two days and you know you need two suits and two shirts and a pair of shoes. And the business ensures that it's hanging in the cupboard of the hotel when you arrive. Now, the knock-on of that is firstly, those clothes will now be designed to last much longer. So it addresses the whole fast fashion industry. And we know the impact that the fast fashion industry is having globally. And so now we design products for longevity because the, the owner of those clothes, the business that is providing that service, will ensure that they can get maximum use out of it. I, as a consumer, it's obviously convenience. When I get there, my clothes are waiting. But also think about the impact on the airline industry. So think about the weight of everyone's luggage in an aeroplane and what the impact on fuel consumption is. We know the contribution of the airline industry to greenhouse gas emissions, to climate change. So there are so many benefits of just that example of answering that question, why do I take luggage with me when I travel? After my two days, the company collects those clothes, they dry cleaned, I returned to where I came from. You know, so, I mean, two years ago, we wouldn't have, five years ago, we wouldn't have even have thought that such a company could exist. Why would I need something like that? Children's clothing, for example, we know how quickly kids grow out of their clothing. So we're going into winter. Let's say I have a two-year-old. Uh, the company delivers clothing for a, a two to three-year-old for winter. At the end of the season, I get it back. I get the summer clothing. Again, it forces design for longevity in that clothing. We see it in the white goods space. Why do I own a washing machine? I don't need a washing machine. I need to be able to wash my clothes. So is there an opportunity for me to rent a washing machine where I pay per wash? And we can have 4-hour technology built into the washing machine that essentially recognizes every time I do a wash and I'm billed for it. And every two to three months, someone comes out and services it. So now I've created a new type of job in the service industry, doing repairs and maintenance on white goods. After, let's say, two years, someone comes, comes and collects that washing machine. I get perhaps a newer model, and that machine is sent for repair, refurbishment, and it's reintroduced back into the economy again for somebody else to use. Once again, the principle in it is if I'm the owner of that washing machine, I need to make sure that it's designed for longevity because I want to get maximum use out of that washing machine. So I think this issue around product as service is fundamental to this issue that we face now, that products are made to last for the least amount of time because the business model is I want you to come back and buy another one. So how do I, if I'm a manufacturer, how do I build something that is going to last just long enough that you don't lose faith in the brand but not too long that you don't buy another one from me. And we have to change that behavior. I mean, if you think back to our grandparents, our parents' days, you know, they would have fridges that would last for 20, 30 years. Nowadays, if you have one that lasts for five years, you're probably lucky. There was a lot of discussion yesterday around the $9 toaster, <laughs> um, you know, because we can get things so cheaply now. 
But we know if something's cheap, we're probably not seeing the full cost in that product. There are a lot of environmental externalities. There are a lot of costs that have been borne along its value chain that we just don't see. Uh, you know, the environment bears that cost. Human, human health and society bears that cost. So, yeah, I think, you know, there are so many innovative models. And, you know, to the listeners to the podcast today, you know, go and explore on the Internet. If you just search for small businesses, uh, circular economy, sharing economy, you'll find so many fantastic examples of. I remember one, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was from Ireland where the question was asked. It was a um, takeaway coffee shop and uh, they were trying to force people to bring reusable cups. And so when you went to go and buy your coffee, they would say, do you want a cup with your coffee? And it seems like a really odd question to ask. I mean, of course I'd want a cup with my coffee. Otherwise, how am I going to drink my coffee? But by asking that question, it was making the consumer stop and go, oh, hang on, wait a second. I'm actually having to pay for the cup. I don't actually want the cup. I want the coffee. That's what I'm after. And so it was forcing the consumer to go, okay, well, next time I'm going to bring my own cup. So you can say just by asking the right questions and keeping this resource issue in your mind, how do we decouple our society and development from resource consumption? Asking the right questions helps to change behavior. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, we as consumers have such a large role to play in this transition to a more circular economy. We need to change behavior. We need to get people to understand the resource intensity of their own lives because so much of it we take for granted. We just consume and we consume and we don't stop and think around our own footprints and our own resource footprints. So, yeah, there's some really wonderful example of businesses, and I could probably go on the whole day talking about these. But, yeah, if you're listening, Google it and, and just explore the opportunities that are out there. Mm. Dirk, do you have anything to add to that as well? Uh, just to highlight the point that longevity in uh, in product has been lost. I think we all know that, right? We've, we we buy things, and, and we're responsible. We, we want something new, and every time something new comes out, we need that thing. I mean, an example a friend told me about the other day is uh, Alvi Reels, a famous Australian fishing reel, has gone out of business because they're too good. They last forever. And we need to reward that rather than have those sorts of products go out of business. So it has to be economically viable for companies. So they're obviously going to have to charge more for something that lasts longer. So what does that mean for us? Do we then buy less things, but we pay more for those things? So at the end of the day, it makes no difference to us. We just have we just have to get used to having less things. But the things we do have cost a bit more, and they're going to last us for much longer. And perhaps we need to then share more of those things. So I think that's the second point that Linda was making that I really like to highlight is that sharing economy it has to be the way that, that we transition to circular as well. Mm, I agree. I agree with that as well. And I think if I can add to that as well, it's my sense working with a lot of the a lot of youth in, in terms of, you know, being a lecturer and, and working with postgraduate students is the youth get it? We're dealing with the with youngsters that don't want to be stuck with having to pay off a car loan or a house bond, or you know they they want to be mobile. They want to up and you know I'm I'm working in in Sydney today, but I could be working in New York tomorrow, and so we we're dealing with a generation that's a lot more mobile, and they don't want to be bogged down with all the stuff. And so when I talk to the youth, they seem to get this idea of the sharing economy. They can they can resonate with it. And, and you can see the excitement in terms of, well, maybe there's a different kind of future to the one that, that we're used to. 
you know, the one that their parents have grown up in. And, and for me, that gives me hope because it's up to the next generation to, to help solve these big global issues that we're facing. And, and, uh, and I'm excited by that. I am too. Yeah. I think there's a lot of potential as well to move, move away from that individualistic lifestyle. I think that we all fear so much of, of isolation and loneliness. And I think definitely sharing economy has so many opportunities, not only for helping to save the planet, but also to bring us back together with each other as well, which I think is an awesome opportunity. Yeah, it's a lovely take on it, yeah. Mm. So this is a question for both of you, and it's a little bit unrelated to what we've just been talking about, but I think it's important to include this in this conversation um, as AI is having a lot of discussion at the moment in the general public. Is there a space for AI within the circular economy or is AI contributing to some of the reasons and issues of why we need a circular economy? Well, from a university perspective, I think that uh, AI has definitely a role to play in just that exchange of knowledge. So if, if things are more available, if information is more available, then absolutely that's that's a benefit. In terms of the circular economy, I mean, we could use AI to help develop technologies that might be able to develop new compounds or materials and help us recycle materials. But generally, I think, yeah, that access to information is probably the most important aspect of, of AI. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is, is that there's a very close link between the circular economy and 4-hour and, and, um, and things like AI. I think that it has an important role to play in you know, in terms of how we access resources, I gave the example of the washing machine earlier, is that if you actually build some kind of, you know, IT technology into that, that can actually track per wash, for example. You know, we've, we've, we see it, for example, in the, why do I need to own a car? You have the app, cars are parked around the city. You know, I book a car with my cell phone. I scan the tag over the windscreen. I use the car for the day or to go and get my groceries. At the end of the day, I lock the car and I get billed for that. So we see a lot of kind of ICT technology built into 4-hour and sharing economy applications. But I think, again... You know, the, the reality is that every country is in a different position when it comes to its transition to the circular economy. So I come from a country with a 30-odd percent unemployment rate as South Africa. Australia has, what, 3 4%, if mm. I'm not mistaken, unemployment rate. And so it's been interesting the last few days when I've been exploring around the city to see signs up that says, you know, help wanted. I come from a country where you, you just don't see signs like that because you know we just don't have enough jobs. So you don't see advertisements advertising for you know help needed at a, a restaurant or a, a shop. And so we're desperate to create jobs. And so we are very reluctant to kind of transition to very automated processes to to go into a material recovery facility or a recycling facility and and see a very automated system just it wouldn't it wouldn't fly in south africa because we need labor intensive activities to create jobs to create spaces and i think the circular economy we we do know the circular economy has the potential to be net positive in terms of job creation which i think globally is fantastic uh, as a developing country for us, I think that's probably one of the biggest drivers is the fact that we can create new jobs and we're desperate to create new jobs. So I think it's very much country specific in terms of what the role of, of 4IR, what AI is going to be in the journey. And I think we need to understand the potential benefits of it, but we also need to be very aware of the potential risks that it can create. Uh, and so I think, you know, 
appropriate solutions for countries is going to be imperative. We can't just necessarily plug and play things from one country into another. We need to understand the, the benefits, the opportunities, but also the potential unintended consequences of that. Mm. So to kind of follow on there from what you were talking about in South Africa and, and its unemployment rate compared to Australia... How does the adoption of circular economy practices differ between Australia and South Africa? And what can developed nations learn from developing countries? Are there particular projects as well that you're proud of, both of you, in both of your respective fields? Well, I think in terms of how it differs, in that sense, I think, you know, going back to my earlier comment, I think we're probably in a very similar position. I don't think there are too many differences we we both countries of predominantly landfilling our waste, limited recycling to date. We're still early on in our circular economy journeys. I think in terms of what developed can learn from developing, for me it's 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 been sort of glaringly obvious the last few days just the different level of consumption in Australia compared to South Africa. And so I think there you probably face a bigger challenge in terms of that societal change is how do you get consumers to consume less? And particularly when the model is, well, you know, the economy ticks over by getting people to buy more stuff. So again, going back to the fishing reel one, Mm. you know, if you're consuming less, businesses are going to go out of business. So that for me was, was an obvious difference, just the level of consumption between the two countries. I think also one of the things that's been quite interesting to us in South Africa as we've been walking down the circular economy journey and trying to understand what it is, the different types of examples of a circular economy, where we've kind of gone, oh, you know, well, we've been doing that for decades. We've just never called it a circular economy. And I think what we see in a lot of First Nations traditional kind of behavior activities, there's a lot of circular practices already built into that. First Nations live very close to the land. They understand the consequences of of resource consumption and of wastage. And so I think that there's a lot that we can learn in terms of those indigenous practices. And so I think across Africa, we see a lot of circular behavior. The question is, well, I suppose it's twofold to make sure that we don't lose that. And secondly, how we can scale it. And I think that's the big challenge that we're facing now is how do we scale circular practices? It's a a tricky one because, you know, we we do a lot of demonstration. There's the Recirculator project that SEU is doing to help to demonstrate circular interventions. But we're struggling to just get them to a scale where we're seeing a meaningful difference in the economy. So I think that is that is probably going to be our our biggest challenge is just to replicate these different types of interventions. But as I said earlier, you know, we, we're all on this journey and if we can learn from each other, if the university can crack that nut and we can learn from it from our side, you know, I, I'm looking forward to the continuous engagement with the university going forward and, and how we can share information and learn from each other on this journey. Mm. Dirk, do you have anything to add to that? I think both South Africa and Australia, because we're so early in that journey, we can learn from other countries as well and we can learn from the mistakes of Europe and also the the things that have been done really well. I mean, in Europe, there's the benefit of that sort of intense uh, population density where things are easy to transport. For instance, in the waste sector, if you were trying to, say, for instance, make gas out of uh, organic waste, it's you don't have to drive huge distances, whereas if you want to do that in the northern rivers, 
than if you had to drive waste from Lismore to Casino or vice versa to some sort of facility, then uh, you've already lost the benefits of making that gas in your in your fuel costs. So I think we definitely have different challenges with the size of the of the countries and uh, and the density of, of population. But yeah, we can certainly learn from from other examples from around the world as well. And just back to that technology, I think that was a really good point about yeah, mechan- mechanization is a blessing and a curse because we don't want to lose all the jobs to mechanization, but certainly that it can be it can be very helpful. So I think in Australia we don't have a lot a, a large population, so we do have to kind of go down that mechanization pathway. Whereas in in other countries where there are more population, uh, where there's a high population, then they can sort of rely on that population more. So yeah, it's definitely going to be different between the countries and how we how we address uh, our approach to circular economy. Mm. I think also is you know one of the things that I did pick up uh, not only yesterday but in in preparing for the visit reading some of the the reports that have been produced in Australia around the circular economy I was quite surprised actually to learn that Australia had until very recently been exporting a lot of its waste to China for for recycling and reprocessing and that for me was quite a big difference because when when the Chinese said look we're putting restrictions in place with regards to the quality of material that we'll actually import for recycling purposes South Africa was not really affected at all because we had only been exporting maybe 3-4% if that of our waste and there was a fundamental difference there between the two in that we had had voluntary extended producer responsibility in place in South Africa for oh, probably about the last 15 years or so. And for the listeners who don't know what extended producer responsibility or EPR is, it basically says you as a producer have a legal responsibility to deal with your product at end of life. So if you're a big brand owner, a Coca-Cola or a PepsiCo or whatever it might be, you have a legal responsibility to deal with your bottle or your can or whatever it is at end of life. And so businesses, producers in South Africa voluntarily had been putting money into the system to grow local recycling. And unfortunately, because of our very high unemployment rate, we've got a very large informal waste sector who collects recyclables out of desperate need to earn an income. And so they'll collect and they'll sell into the recycling economy. And so our voluntary EPR schemes had focused on how do we create local end-use markets for recycled goods, for paper and packaging, for example. Whereas in Australia, in Europe, absolutely, their systems, you've got product stewardship in Australia, their systems had gone into how do we use that money to ensure better collection. So all of the funding went into collection systems and then said, okay, we've collected it, what do we do with it? And the solution was send it to China. And so when China said, sorry, we're not going to take it anymore, Europe, Australia was left with the situation of saying, okay, we're collecting all this stuff, but what do we do with it now? And so they've been scrambling to find solutions to improve recycling. And so we're seeing this discussion around growing the recycling economy in Australia, growing it in in Europe, uh, really at the top of the agenda. For us, we're dealing with the other issue to say, well, we can't continue to exploit marginalized people, the informal waste sector, who are really playing a vital role to grow the recycling economy. So there's a lot of discussion happening in South Africa at the moment now to say we need to recognize informal waste collectors as entrepreneurs for the role that they're playing as collectors and to compensate them for that. So I think we're probably the first country in the world who has built into our EPR regulations 
the fact that informal waste collectors need to be compensated a service fee. So if I'm an informal collector and I go around collecting recyclable plastic material, for example, out of bins, I go and sell it at a, a buyback center or a recycler, not only do I get paid the market-related price, but on top of it, I get paid a service fee for the collection role that I've done. And I think that is a huge strides in terms of how we better integrate the informal waste sector into the global waste economy, which, which for me is both a relief and I, I think it's, it's a fantastic regulatory development that we've seen. So that's a big difference one. And I think what Australia is going to have to figure out is what regulatory instruments does it want to put in place now? Does it want to move towards more mandatory EPR systems where it's forcing producers to put more funding into the system to grow a recycling economy? Or is it just going to continue to landfill its waste? Because that, that issue around we can't just continue to recycle waste and to dump it into other countries. Because I always say waste will always flow from a country with strong regulation to a country with weak regulation. And the problem with that is when it flows to a country with weak regulation, there's most likely going to be greater leakage of that waste into the environment and we're going to see greater pollution. So I think countries need to realize that the potential for causing pollution in other countries and human health impacts in other countries is extremely great when you just export. And I think we need to be looking at how, as a country, we take more responsibility and ownership for the waste that we actually generate in country and finding our own solutions to deal with that. Mm. Linda, you mentioned at the Impact Forum that the younger generation will be the first to experience a depletion of resources. Um, the younger generation today uh, will be the first to experience a depletion of resources. Would you be able to expand a little bit on, on that? Yeah, sure. So earlier on, I mentioned the fact that we live in this very linear economy of extracting, consuming and disposing. And when you live on a planet of finite resources, you're going to run out. And I think there's been a lot of research done now in terms of just understanding how many years of economically viable mining we have left for certain minerals and metals. As South Africa, we've just recently done that study and we found that we had five critical raw materials that had less than 50 years of economically viable mining remaining. And so if you're a young student in your late teens or early 20s, that's within your lifetime. And so the comment of, as the youth today, you'll be the first generation to experience that end of resources. And things like rare earth elements aren't called rare earth elements for no reason. <laughs> you know, they're pretty rare. But we're also seeing as we transition to renewable energy technologies, for example, to, to solar, to wind, to electric vehicles, there's a greater demand for these kinds of, of minerals and metals for rare earths. We're seeing massive increase in demand for, for certain rare earths. And, and maybe that's a necessary evil in terms of decarbonizing the economy is the greater extraction of metals. But then we have to make sure that we've got solutions in place that at the end of life of a solar panel or a wind turbine or electric vehicle, that we are getting those metals back into the economy. We can't just be landfilling it because then we're even worse off. And so that's why it's so critical that the circular economy is not just a case of saying, how do we use things longer? Because that's just drawing out the inevitable. What we're saying then is, okay, well, maybe it's not going to be 50 years, it'll be 75 years, because I'm just going to make that car last a little bit longer. That's not going to solve the problem. We truly have to decouple our economies from resource consumption. So 
I think it's it's both nerve-wracking in the sense of, you know, how we're setting up future generations, but it's also exciting in terms of finding, trying to find the solutions of how we actually do that. And I, and I think kind of it's just stretching my own brain at the moment, talking about it in terms of what does that future actually look like and what are the practical interventions that we have to put in place? Because we can have these discussions at a very theoretical level, but at the end of the day, someone has to be implementing this. Someone's got to be doing it. And maybe that's part of my frustration is that we tend to talk about these things continuously and we don't actually stop and say, you know what, it's time to actually stop talking and it's time to start doing because we know that for every year that we delay, you know, it's we're just bringing the inevitable closer. So a study that was done recently called Breaking the Plastic Wave, which actually mapped the leakage of plastic into global oceans, it's a it's a lovely report to read if anyone's interested in understanding, you know, how plastic is actually leaking into our environment. But it really just said in that report, we need to pull every lever and we need to pull it now. So we don't have the luxury of time to make these kinds of transitions. And that's why we need more organizations out there that are really at the coalface of this transition to a circular economy that are actually doing things. And we need to be able to empower them to make those kinds of changes. And I don't think we have enough of them. Mm. Dirk, do you have anything to add to that? Just, I guess, from an education perspective, it's really important that we arm the youth of today with the necessary tools to face a lot of these problems, whether that be in, uh, you know, training in in tech or critical thinking or problem solving, as well as you know, making our generation doing everything we can to to prevent things from happening. We also need to be mindful of training and getting people ready for what's what's coming in terms of resource limitation for example in australia we still send all our aluminium cans overseas we've been talking about recycling aluminium cans for 30 years we still send them overseas we still lose that product we don't get it back Um, and as linda was saying once those resources are gone we're not getting them back so we really do need to be mindful of that but i have three sons they're all in their 20s and um, they have a totally different perspective to me they're they're excited, they're, um, they're encouraged. And I think we've kind of forced that on them, for instance, with housing prices in Australia. You can't, if you're a young person, you're just not getting into the housing market. And so they think differently about it. They're like, well, I'm not going to own a house. I'm not going to waste my money on, on a huge loan. I'm going to go and travel or I'm going to work in different places. So I think, yeah, there are, there's a different mindset that I will never understand. But the best that we can do is, um, yeah, is to stop things now, but also to try and train people for what's coming. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the youth are going to need an re- entirely different skill set to, yeah. to what we have. And, and I think it's tricky because you, you're trying to, as a university, you're trying to provide those kinds of skills and the knowledge and the education for a world that looks so different from today that sometimes I'm not convinced mm. that we even know what skills they actually need for future generations. So I think it's part of the challenge as a university to go, well, what should we actually be building in the youth today? And mm. what should our programs be, you know, what should they actually look like? And so when we also talk about um, things that use precious and rare metals like electric cars and wind turbines and solar panels, these things that we need for a more sustainable future, can those things be used and built out of recycled materials? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's it's one of the benefits of metals is that unlike plastic, which can only go through maybe what, six, seven, eight cycles of recycling, 
metals you can. You'll have some losses along the way, but if you can get them back into the system, you can continue to use them over and over and over again. And so it's important that we do have collection systems in place, that we are recovering those metals, that we are reintroducing those metals back into the, the development of new products. So I think that doesn't stress me too much. Wind turbines are slightly different in that you're dealing with composite materials there. And I think globally, there's a race on at the moment, you know, from a research perspective to truly understand how to recycle those kinds of products because they are composites um, made up of different kinds of products. So they can be challenging. We've seen some also innovative uses of wind turbine blades and, and things like that. But, but certainly when it comes to the metals themselves, that doesn't stress me too much. I think the, the real concern is just collecting it and getting back into the system because, you know, probably Australia, I know certainly across Africa, we're seeing solar panels being dispersed into rural areas and rural communities in terms of maybe getting them off grid or for the first time actually providing them with access to electricity. And it's just so remote. And my concern is, is that at the end of life, maybe 10, 15 years for that solar panel, are we just going to see this end of life electrical and electronic equipment, you know, lying in our rural areas and the cost of getting it back to centers where we can actually recycle and reprocess is probably going to be the challenge. So we also need to be thinking not only in terms of the waste streams that we have now, but what's coming over the hill in 10 to 15 years' time. And we need to be putting the systems in place, the collection systems in place. Again, um, I don't know about Australia, but we have now extended producer responsibility for electric and electronic equipment. So cell phones, laptops, anything with a, what was the comment yesterday, anything with a plug or a battery. Um, again, there's a, a responsibility from pr producers to make sure those products are dealt with at end of life. But collection is going to be critical if we want to make sure that we get those metals back into our system. Dirk, do you have anything to add? Well, I think in Australia we do have the benefit that we do have good collection systems, but we don't then follow through with how we collect and, and process those materials. So I think, yeah, we, we definitely have the capacity to do that. I mean, we're catching up with, for instance, the technology that we're trying to implement for climate change abatement. We're really just doing whatever we can quickly. And we have to just be careful of that. Governments and, and businesses don't lurch towards a, a solution without thinking about the consequences. And the solar panels is a perfect example of that. They're fantastic, but we have to build in infrastructure to, to deal with what's coming. So we have to sort of have that longevity in our uh, design of equipment and and how we recycle and turn and then put that back into the economy mm. so we only have time for one more question i wish we had more because i have a million more questions to ask you both but i guess what we'll end on for both of you what advice do you have for people right now of how they can get involved in circular economies how they can help the future of sustainability and what they can do in their everyday lives I think from my side is that, you know, we live in a world now of convenience. We live in a world of easy access to goods and to services. And so sometimes I think we forget the impact that we actually have. I think we're too far removed as individuals. We tend to be too far removed from the environment. And so I think it's probably just an awareness. It's an awareness of the weight of your footprints on the planet to think about what you consume, to be a responsible consumer, to think twice in terms of do I need it, do I want it, is this, is this a sustainable product that I'm buying? And, and I know it's a difficult one, you know, to ask people to do that. It's a very personal one to ask people to do it. 
But I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we have to be accountable as individuals to the impact that we're actually having. And, and you know, we talk about the climate impacts and biodiversity loss and, and water stress and they seem to be such big, insurmountable problems, and we don't quite know where to start as individuals. It just seems too big. What can I do about climate change? You know, it's this big, massive global problem. But I think, you know, we all have a small role to play in that. And so, yeah, just being a, a very conscious consumer and and being aware of the different brands that are out there, the different businesses that are out there that are trying to make a difference and, and to be, you know, try to be part of the solution. And I think, you know, in... All in our own small way, collectively, I think will help to contribute towards that. Dirk? Yeah, yesterday someone had said that you can really only influence your circle. You know, your circle of influence is important. And I think that's how, as individuals, we can address that. So in, in your everyday life, you try and, you know, live that philosophy of circular economy if, if that's what you want to do. So, yeah, it's about your own circle of influence. And I think the most important thing that Linda just said is, yeah, you, you can only be part of the solution because you can't be the solution yourself. And we do need to also see change from industry and from government because as a consumer, you, you don't have all the power. You have limited power in what you can do. So, yeah, if there's opportunities to try and uh, affect uh, government or business in that, in that drive, then uh, absolutely uh, we need to try and do that as well. Thank you both so much for being here today. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Just quickly before we go, for listeners, where could they find you, both of you, and your work if they wanted to do some more research? Uh, I'm just at Southern Cross University. You can uh, just Google Dirk Erler at SCU and I should come up in my profile and absolutely um, keen to share information and provide information where I can. Yeah, from my side, I'm not sure how many of the listeners will be on LinkedIn, but I tend to post a lot of stuff there. And then also wasteroadmap.co.za. Certainly all of the research that we're driving, helping to evidence this whole transition, it's all publicly available. It's funded by the government of South Africa, so we make it all publicly available for other countries, students, universities to learn, to share. So, yeah, they can find all of that research, wasteroadmap.co.za. Great. Thank you both so much. You're welcome, Riva. Thank you. We would like to acknowledge the Widjibal Wyabal people of Bundjalung country as the traditional owners of this land. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging.